This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. Another poll out this week showing Governor Gretchen Whitmer only two points ahead of one of her possible challengers next year as a Republican nominee, James Craig, the former Detroit police chief, only two points ahead. The same poll also tested Whitmer against Garrett Soldano, who is a Kalamazoo-area chiropractor, and Tudor Dixon, who is a talk show host. And Whitmer was ahead of both Soldano and Dixon by 10 points. Now, I'll ask you this question and another one. And uh, you think about what you would answer, and then I'll give you my answer. First question is, uh, MERS newsletter reports that Governor Gretchen Whitmer has a massive campaign war chest, and Michigan government boasts a record-breaking amount of money that she and the legislature can spend on, quote, the people of Michigan, unquote. Barring an unforeseen calamity occurring, does this give her an advantage that makes her just about as much of a shoe-in to win re-election in 2022 as a governor could be? Now, my second question would be, which will be the more important number to watch for in the 2022 election? the percentage of Detroiters who vote for the Republican gubernatorial candidate or just the percentage of Detroiters who vote, period? Those are the two questions. Now, my answer to the first one about Gretchen Whitmer's prospects for re-election is this. Based on her record in office so far, she doesn't deserve to be re-elected. But she's caught a couple of huge breaks. Not just all the money, public and private, but the nature of her potential Republican opposition next year. With the possible exceptions of untested former Detroit Police Chief James Craig and a multi-millionaire Metro Detroit auto dealer named Kevin Rinke, who has some personal issues he'll have to sort out, the rest of the possible field, and that would include Garrett Soldano and Tudor Dixon, the rest of the possible field of challengers are zeros on the name ID scorecard and have scant financial resources. So there is no George Romney or John Engler or even Rick Snyder in sight in this group. And no incumbent governor in Michigan history of either major party has ever been defeated when seeking re-election to a second four-year term. Yes, after a Republican named Kim Sigler lost in 1948 and Democrat John Swainson was ousted by Romney in 1962, but those were in the days of two-year terms. Yes, Democrat Jim Blanchard lost in 1990 to Engler, but Blanchard had already won a second four-year term four years before. Bill Milliken and Engler won all three times they ran for four-year terms. In fact, their first re-elections 
were by bigger margins than their initial wins. Ditto Jennifer Granholm. Snyder also won re-election in 2014 before he was term limited. Now, as to the question about Detroiters voting next year, my answer is the percentage of registered voters in Detroit who cast ballots of any sort is the more important factor. But the important thing to understand is that the Detroit vote just doesn't matter that much anymore. Even if a candidate like James Craig could quadruple the Republican percentage of the vote in Motown, it wouldn't make a difference if he's not doing well in the suburbs and outstate, where 95% of the electorate lives. This is not 1950, when Detroit represented nearly a third of the statewide vote. It's now down to a minuscule 6% of the statewide vote. In an ideal turnout for the Democrats, Detroit next year would ratchet its percentage of the vote up to, let's say, 7 or 8% or even double digits, while the rest of the state turnout stayed flat or receded. But that's not going to happen. Next year's election will depend on the suburbs and whether Republicans can claw back the voters, many of them independents, who deserted them in 2018 and 2020. And if they do, they've got a chance to win it all. Now, here's another question. The Shiawassee County Board of Commissioners, all Republicans, voted six to nothing, one absent, on July 15th to award some 250 county employees, including themselves, roughly $557,000 in what they called hazard pay for dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. The payments, ranging from $5,000 to $25,000 apiece, were scuttled at least in part due to a lawsuit charging that the commissioners violated Michigan's open meetings law when they went into closed session to discuss the payments. Early this week, a judge ordered any payments above $5,000 to be returned. Then the commissioners reversed themselves and rescinded the whole deal. But if public outrage over the initial action should spark calls for the officials to be removed from office. Could Governor Gretchen Whitmer remove them all by herself? And should she? Well, let me just mention this. Retired attorney Bob LeBrant points out that an article and section in the 1963 Michigan Constitution, that's the one we're operating under right now, allows the governor to remove public officials for corrupt conduct, or malfeasance or misfeasance in office. Article 6, Section 11 allows the governor to make appointments to fill those vacancies caused by the governor's removal of those county commissioners. Yes, Governor Gretchen Whitmer could remove six Republican commissioners who may have violated the Open Meetings Act or the Michigan Constitutional Provision in Article 11, Section 3, which prohibits extra compensation for any public officer or contractor for services already rendered. 
Last year, a story was published on how Governor Alex J. Grossbeck, who was a Republican, in 1926 removed one Thomas Johnson as state superintendent of public instruction. By the way, he was a Republican who had been elected statewide. It was then a statewide elected position because Johnson had accepted federal funds compensating him for administering vocational education in addition to receiving his state salary as state superintendent of public instruction. Governor Grossbeck appointed somebody named Wilford Coffey to fill the Johnson vacancy caused by the governor's removal. As I just mentioned, the Shiawassee County commissioners agreed to rescind the COVID-19 bonuses once the media reported the body voted to approve such payouts, so there is no need for Whitmer to act. Still, the stench lingers. So Shiawassee County voters will have to decide among themselves what, if anything, they want to do to, quote, punish, unquote, the commission. Now, another question I could ask, but I don't have time for, uh, would be, How would you advise a Republican gubernatorial candidate to respond when asked, did Joe Biden really win Michigan in the 2020 election? Think about that. Don't have time to answer it now. We're going to have some guests, so stay tuned. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are most fortunate to have with us Scott Tucker, who is the superintendent of Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore in northwestern Lower Peninsula of Michigan. Thank you, Scott Tucker, for being our guest. Hey, good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to ask you uh, about Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore, uh, your role there, and uh, for starters, uh, what's it been like this summer? You know, this summer has been a spectacular time to be up in northern Michigan. The, the National Lake Shore was uh, signed into law in 1970, 50 years ago. And so last summer we celebrated our 50th anniversary. This summer, uh, 51 years has been spectacular. Record visitation, spectacular weather, uh, wide open beaches, and visitors are using the lake shore to, uh, to recreate and to sort of escape a little bit of the the world we live in today. It's amazing the number of people who make it to Sleeping Bear Dunes National Shore. I'm just staggered at the attendance you have. What is it this year, and how does it compare to previous years? Uh, you know, on any given year, we've in the last you know five years, we've been hitting about 1.6 million visitors a year. Um, that is a you know year-round number. You know, January, Februarys are small, but our typical July is half a million visitors. Uh, last year, with uh, the summer of COVID, we had over 1.7 million visitors. So we set a record in 2020 with visitation. 2021, we were actually ahead of that. The month of June, uh, the latest numbers I have sitting on my desk, we were up 50% over last year. Uh, last year, we had uh, about 190,000. Uh, let me correct that. We were about 40% up. This year, we had 278,000 visitors in the month of June alone. 
and we'll see what our July numbers look like. If it's anything from what our trailheads and our parking lots look like, uh, our numbers are going to be uh, another record uh, in 2021. Scott Tucker, you are a National Park Ranger. You have a long history in the National Park Service. What were your previous stints as a National Park Ranger in various <laughs> locales before you came to Michigan? Yeah, you know, the great thing about being a park ranger is your job is in some pretty amazing places. And so I've just celebrated, I, I think I just celebrated my 24th year with the National Park Service. Um, I've, uh, before here, I was on the coast of Oregon. I was a superintendent of Lewis and Clark National Historical Park and told the story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. I was in Washington, D.C., the the heart of uh, of of uh, the government, in a sense, uh, for almost 15 years, where I was the manager of President's Park. So I managed Park Service operations at the White House for many years. I've worked on the National Mall, all the monuments and memorials. I traveled the Lewis and Clark Trail. I worked uh, in Alaska at Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park. So one of the great things about being a park ranger, I get to go to work where most people go on vacation. <laughs> weren't weren't you at one point associated with a museum of the American Indian? I, I I did. I took a little stint. I call it a national park with air conditioning, uh, <laughs> where I where I were where I was the manager of visitor services for the National Museum of the American Indian for the Smithsonian Institution. I also did a small stint in the education department of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington D.C. early in my my federal career. Boy, you've been all over the map in your assignments. As you say, such variety. It's incredible. Uh, here in... Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I say, yeah. And, you know, I've been here at Superintendent Sleeping Bear for five years now. And, uh, you know, it is right up there on uh, the career highlights. Yeah. Well, there are other um, either national parks or part of the national park system in Michigan. I mean, the most famous probably, at least in terms of people knowing about it, is Isle Royal up in the middle of Lake Superior. But there's also pictured rocks. There's something down, I think, in the River Raisin or something, a battle site. What are they in Michigan other than uh, Sleeping Bear? And have you gotten to see any of them since you've been here? Yeah, good question. You know, I have not seen them all, um, unfortunately. But if you look at uh, the Michigan parks, you named most of them. And if you look at last summer, 2020, out of the entire national park system, 423 uh, national parks nationwide, 10 parks set record visitation in 2020. Wow. Uh, three of those were in Michigan. Wow. Sleeping Bear Dunes. Pictured Rocks uh, National Lakeshore also set a record, and River Raisin National Battlefield down in Monroe, Michigan, also set a record. Um, other parks in the state, you have, as you said, Isle Royal up in Lake Superior. You have Keweenaw National Historic Park up on the Keweenaw Peninsula in the UP. Right. Uh, and then you have the North Country Trail, which is headquartered just outside of Grand Rapids. The North Country Trail extends from the East Coast, uh, through Michigan and up into Minnesota. And that trail is actually longer than the Appalachian Trail. And so you have the North Country Trail headquartered here. And then if you've been re- driving the, the the highways around Flint, Lansing, Detroit, you may have seen in the last year some signs highlighting the Motor Cities National Heritage Area. Not necessarily a national park, but a national park program that highlights um, specific uh, communities and opportunities for visitors to experience the stories that communities have to tell. And, of course, here in Michigan, we have a great um, automotive history to be told through the Motor Cities Heritage Area. That's amazing. That's way more than I thought. Um, 
Let me ask you, what are the dimensions of Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore? I mean, everybody knows about the famous dunes, but, I mean, you got huge area up there. Uh, yeah, you know, Sleeping Bear is 75,000 acres up here in northern Michigan, 70 miles of shoreline on the mainland, as well as the two islands, North and South Manitou Islands in Lake Michigan. Of that 75,000 acres, almost 35,000 acres are designated as federal wilderness and managed by the Wilderness Act. Uh, a little bit more uh, scrutiny and uh, management policies and principles to ensure nature is uh, in charge, in a sense. We have the Port Oneida Rural Historic District, which is the largest federally protected agricultural historic district in the country. Um, which highlights 18 turn-of-the-century farms. We have 380 historic structures in the park uh, dating back to uh, the early 1850s. We have the South Manitou Lighthouse, and then we have 100 miles of hiking trail. Gee, really? In the park? That's just unbelievable. Really? yeah, so you know the you know the bucket list is the dune climb <laughs> and Pierce Stocking Scenic Drive, but uh, you know our challenge with our increased visitation is how do we get someone on their second visit to go find another exciting challenge? And so uh, that's what we're seeing this summer. We're seeing that park trails that have not typically been busy have more foot traffic, and we have uh, the amazing Sleeping Bear Heritage Trail, which was designated as a pure Michigan trail last year stretching 20 miles along M22 as a multi-use running foot bicycle trail to provide access to all the areas of the park that you wouldn't have had access to. Well, Scott Tucker, you can't do this all by yourself. I think you've got a few employees, don't you? We do. I, I, I count my employees, <laughs> in a sense, uh, by my phone book. And so my, my new employee phone book that came out yesterday has 173 names in it. So we have 173 employees. That is everything from our campground staff that are uh, checking in campers and taking care of our our facilities there to our carpenters that are working on those historic structures. Of course, uh, custodians, uh, when visitors come, they bring uh, things with them. And so uh, top that off with a giant biology staff and... Uh, we have uh, we have a little city here managing your public lands. <laughs> Honestly, I've got so many more questions I want to ask you, but you've just done such a great job of sketching out the vast challenge you face every year. And what a great job you're doing up there. Thanks for being our guest. Scott Tucker, Superintendent of Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, as promised, and we are very fortunate to have on the line with us somebody I would describe as an exotic guest. He is William Sylvester, and he is chairman of the history department at the King's Academy in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. King's Academy, founded by King Abdullah some two decades ago. So, William Sylvester, thank you for being our guest. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very honored. This is this is wonderful. And I have to say, your cultural literacy is very impressive, Bill. You you gave the correct title. It's not just Jordan. That's what people say. It is the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. So, very well done. Exactly. A+. Plus. 
And you're you're sandwiched, I think, between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and there are a few other countries around as well. And I just want to ask you, um, because we've had a couple of other teachers on the program earlier uh, in far less exotic climes than yours. We had a Holt High School teacher several times here in Michigan. We've had a student named Manar Taleb who goes to Princeton University in New Jersey who graduated from Dearborn Fordson High School two years ago. So we've been asking those teachers how they cope with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, in teaching. And I'm just curious, um, in your situation, I mean, first of all, what is the King's Academy in size? I mean, how many students? Are they boarders? Are they day students? Um, and, you know, how many kids do you have in a classroom at a time? Yeah, great questions. So <clears throat> the King's Academy is actually the only boarding school in, um, as you would say, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Let's say henceforth, let's just go with Jordan. It's a little shorter. And um, we're the only boarding school there. We have roughly 600 students, uh, 9 to 12. We do have a relatively small middle school comprised of just 7th and 8th grade. Uh, there's only about 80 students there. The, the middle school is strictly day students commuting. The high school is a combination of um, international students. We have American students. I teach American students. And we also have students from Asia, from Europe, a few from Africa, from all over the world. But I would still say probably two-thirds of the student population is from either Jordan or from uh, neighboring Palestine. Two-thirds, I would say, about 400. And Amman is a very big city. Amman, it's kind of like you know, Jordan is analogous to Greece. Both, both countries have about uh, 10 million people, and the capital cities, uh, Athens and, and Amman respectively, are roughly half the population. I mean, four and a half, five million. It's a big city. It's, that's half of Michigan's population right there. Wow. Um, so the pandemic uh, hit all over the world last year in the spring, basically. How was Jordan affected as a country uh, over this past, uh, let's call it 16 months? Yes. Now, you know, honestly, Jordan has had one of the most fascinating corona journeys, for lack of a better phraseology. Very, very unique. Believe it or not, when uh, it first struck, when we had our, our first patient zero, if you will, within the country, it was like March, which is about right for the rest of the world, maybe a little later. But we actually statistically were the safest country in the world, if you can believe it, from March until... Uh, October of 2020 for about seven months. And let me tell you, King Abdullah, uh, he's the fourth king of the kingdom. He's been our king since 1999. Uh, king Abdullah was getting rave reviews internationally for uh, containing the virus. And basically, it's real simple. They shut down the airports. They closed all the borders. No one gets out and no one gets in. But let me tell you, it just sunk the economy. The economy just, and it was, to be honest, it was already hit pretty hard. Jordan uh, it really depends on tourism to uh, elevate its economy. And guess what? It's unfortunate. Their peak season happens to be spring, March, April, May. And of course, that's right when the corona happened. So when we closed our borders, uh, the economy took a toll. So what did we have to do by October with businesses struggling and uh, the economy reeling? We opened up the borders. I'm sure you can predict what happened, right? Huge spike. That wow. was really our first wave that the rest of the world had in the spring. 
So our schools across the country went to uh, remote learning, you know, primarily through Zoom, not in-person learning. And uh, it was a tough year. I can tell you, as a 22-year veteran in the classroom, it was it was not easy. Well, did the students have to go home? I mean, like the international students, did they go back to Korea or, you know, South America or wherever they came from? Or, yep. you know, and what about uh, day students there? Could they stay in their yep. home? So, I mean... In other words, the campus was kind of uh, emptied to a certain extent of residents, and you had to do everything remotely, right? Yeah, it was basically a, a Charles Dickens tale of, 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 of two semesters, not two cities. Um, <laughs> the, first, the first semester, it was interesting. We were um, it's kind of a marketing ad, advertising tool. In the first semester, we basically created a bubble. And what a what a bubble is is see since we're a boarding school we basically said once we start getting those first cases in because of the the day students the people commuting and we do have some some day teachers as well um, I as an expat live on campus I'm not commuting I live there and work there on the same campus but obviously once we started getting corona and cases came in it became a safety and a health issue we literally closed we came like a fortress <laughs> fortress Kings Academy right and it was like the Berlin Wall. And so the, for the first semester, we had in-person learning, and we didn't leave that campus for three months. I mean, it was a marathon. Well, we had Chris, Christmas, New Year's break. Everyone goes home. The problem is is you have to rebuild that bubble because now people have been exposed. They've, they've dared to leave the campus, if you will. And we tried to recreate that second bubble in the se- second semester, okay, which was very successful in the fall. And I'm sure you can tell by my tone of voice, the bubble burst. We had a couple of late incubation, a couple of late cases. It was basically the U.K. variant, and it collapsed. So everyone was sent home, and we were on remote learning. So we tried to create the same bubble in the, sec- in the spring semester, you know, from January to May, and it just didn't work. So we went to remote learning, and that campus was dead. It was, it was uh, like attending a funeral <laughs> every day. It was unreal, I can tell you. Well, I mean, was there a big difference between teaching remotely from that point on and having the kids in the classroom, I mean, how much of a struggle was it? Absolutely. There's no, there's no question. There is such a decided difference, uh, a markedly inferior one at that, between in-person, traditional, classic, you know, teaching, students and teachers sharing the same classroom. You can see their expressions. And sure, you can see them on a screen. It is not the same. Uh, I think we, we learned that the hard way. I think right before this, this pandemic struck, if I may say so, There were a lot of educational gurus who were touting uh, online remote learning as equal to in-person, right? It was almost kind of like the future, and the traditional model of instruction in person was antiquated. It was Industrial Revolution-esque. I think that has been pretty much summarily shot. I don't think you're going to hear people saying that anymore. There is nothing like in-person teaching. Yeah, well... So um, what did you encounter when you you got there? What? You've been there like now four years? Yeah, just this will be the fifth year coming up. That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, what did you encounter with the students that you were teaching? I mean, they come from these incredibly diverse backgrounds, these different countries all over the world. And, you know, most of them Jordanians. But, I mean, what was their mindset, their culture, and what were you uh, up against? What was your challenge teaching them uh, in the classroom or remote, either one? I know the quality remote is bad, but, I mean, what what is your feeling about teaching today 
uh, particularly in your situation, is maybe unique. But what what is your feeling about what you encounter as a teacher with your students? Yeah, so I, I just would say that um, teaching is dynamic. It depends a lot on body language, and it's hard to get that chemistry when you're staring into a computer screen. And uh, I think some of the joy was robbed out of it. I think it, it really, like, people get drained by it. It's, it's So many students say, I've never been more exhausted at the end of the day. I mean, you probably know this, but the mental health industry has just shot through the roof. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just odd. And so I think with, obviously, the Biden administration's announcement this last week and the CDC saying whether you've been vaccinated or not, everything's going to be, you know, you have to wear a mask. Yeah. And uh, we want it in person now, everywhere. That's kind of the trend now. People are basically saying no more online learning. Okay. Well, listen, we're going to discuss this some more in our next segment, but we got to take a short break. Stay tuned. We'll be back with William Sylvester at the King's Academy in Jordan. Stay tuned. Thank you. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with William Sylvester, chairman of the history department at the King's Academy in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Uh, William, I want to ask you, um, critical race theory has taken the country by storm now in education. And boy, do you have a diverse uh, student population that you're teaching at the King's Academy. You've got a big challenge, it would seem to me. So how do you look at that issue and uh, how do you cope with it? Yeah, excellent question. If I may, I just would like to make one little um, digression. I have two shout-outs since you're a Michigan-based political program. It's only appropriate to say that uh, honor Carl Levin, who was Michigan's longest-serving senator. Is that is that correct? That is correct. 30, 36 years, six yep. full terms. Yep. And, and Levin overlapped with Stabenow, I believe, around 2000 to 2014 or 2001, Correct. 2015. Correct. Right? And uh, all right. And the last thing, of course, Cade Cunningham coming to Motown. I don't know if you're a sports fan, Bill, but come on. you got to be excited <laughs> as a piston. And Isaiah Livers, the Michigan star. Yeah, right? I know. I, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. Yeah, but listen, what about critical race okay. theory? So critical race theory, um, wow, has that torn this country, the landscape, uh, right? It's taken it by storm. So I would say... Like anything, I think the as a teacher, I would say try to teach it on both sides, both both points of view, if you will, or multiple points of view. And of course, supporters of it would say this is the long overdue reckoning to right previous wrongs. Uh, detractors would say that it violates MLK's uh, famous 1963 "I Have a Dream" speech, where people are essentially being judged now by the color of their skin and not by the content of the character. That's the argument from the other side. Uh, my feeling is, as is, is a, is a veteran history teacher that of 23 years now, um, I, as an independent moderate, I would say, I think the key as a teacher is you've got to teach all of history, all of its warts, all of its moles, all of its tumors, everything, good, bad, and indifferent. So I say, yes, let's, let's, let's open, open the lid, and let's talk about that first slave ship that landed on U.S. soil in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia. I do. And let's talk about Bull Connor, right? Let's talk about George Wallace, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever speech. That's all fair game. It needs to be said. Let's not paper over anything. But let's talk about another few other truths that may not be comfortable. How about things like 100% of the slaveholders in this country were Democrats and 0% were Republicans? 
about the fact that 100% of the Republicans in Congress and 0% of the Democrats voted for the 15th Amendment, which is what granted uh, newly freed slaves um, suffrage in 1870. Okay, uh, Andrew Jackson leading the Trail of Tears, uh, which was a genocidal relocation of the Cherokees to Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things here, FDR's relocation of the Japanese-Americans. And, and if, if, if you know your history, unfortunately, that's, that is all one party, the same party that, that unfortunately is guilty of those things. Now, the other side has their own flaws, too, okay? The Gilded Age corruption, the conclusion of, with the collusion of big business and from the 1870s before World War I, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1924, that's on the Republican watch. Uh, that's not a good look either in these politically charged times. So I embrace all of it. What I am, to be honest with you, worried about, Senator, is I am worried that, okay, it's great to say let's talk about all the warts and the moles, but I'm worried that maybe only some of them get exposed. I don't want some. I want the ray of sunshine to go on everything. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense. Well, what is the reaction to your students when they get through taking your course? Do you feel you've changed some minds? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. At the beginning of my, I teach a number of courses, but among them would be, you would like this, it's a poli-sci class called Government Models. On the very first day, I have them take what's called a political compass test. Now, it's it's not a traditional test like literacy, like, um, you know, how many kings have been in Jordan, that sort of thing. It's actually just what's your view on, are you for or against gun control? Are you for or against you know, um, abortion or things like that. And, and, and as you're answering the questions, they're charting you on a left-right spectrum and also a north-south authoritarian libertarian. So we do this on the first day. Now, there's no judgment. There's no right or wrong, right? It's an, it's an opinion. But then at the end of the year, after going through, it's a very heavily currents-based course, a lot of civics. At the end of the year, it's interesting. Um, of course, they almost always score in that third quadrant on the first day, liberal, libertarian. I mean, you know, they're young. As Winston Churchill said, if you're if you're young and conservative, you're heartless. If you're old and liberal, you're foolish. But it's very interesting to notice <laughs> that that 90% of the times, guess where the students, guess where they go? Do they go further to the left? Do they go further libertarian? No, they don't. They go more to towards the center, the sensible center, <laughs> as some would say. Um, and it's very interesting. I always ask them, why is that? Why, why? I mean, you know, I don't have an agenda. I do not have an agenda other than educating them. But they are free to form their own opinions, right? And, and it's interesting, the response I get is, well, we didn't really, we thought we knew these issues, right? But we really didn't. But thanks to this course, we see things now. And it, again, they're not shifting toward like all the way right wing, but they're clearly going more towards the center, towards moderation, mm -hmm. which I find fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a slightly incredible. In the classroom itself, do you get a lot of pushback from students, like challenging things that you're teaching them or telling them? Saying, I have. I, yeah. I have, but to be honest with you, not as much as you might think, you know, with woke, uh, wokeism, if you will. You might expect a little bit more. I don't know. Maybe I've been I've been lucky. I, I don't know if the word is lucky, but I haven't had too many. Uh, maybe one or two, and I just give them the floor and I say, okay, you know, and and I, I I don't look at it as a threat. Hey, everyone is free to share their own opinion as long as we do so respectfully towards one another, and that's really never been an issue. I'm, I'm I must say, I have other teachers that are like, I can't believe you're covering some of these topics. Like there must be anarchy, <laughs> and honestly, the kids are great. They've handled it great. Um, I think we under. Estimate 
how much they can take. That's just my opinion after 23 years. Well, do they debate among themselves in the classroom in front Absolutely. of you? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. full, full-fledged uh, discussions, right, on immigration. By the way, it's really interesting, as you might imagine, in Jordan, Trump is not exactly a popular, was not a popular guy because he was perceived as being pro-Israeli and the relocation of the embassy. <laughs> you can understand it. But boy, let me tell you, one thing they are with him, I have never had a student to, you know, differ on him on the policy of immigration. Oh, I mean, they are really big on that. They're like, put the wall up. What's wrong with you Americans? You know? Really? So it's really, yeah, it's really fascinating how much they support him on, on that issue, right? And when I say that, and I say, well, you realize that's more of a conservative authoritarian position. Like, they, they balk from it like that's evil. But then after a while, they're like, well, it's not evil. I'm like, well, I didn't say it is, but that's the perception. But, you know, we, we have a great time. And again, the idea here is not, I don't have an agenda. Um, it's just to get them politically informed and, and get them participating in our political system, our process. That's what it's all about. Yeah, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, doesn't it have an enormous number of Syrian refugees in the north? Something like 600,000 have come pouring over the borders as a result of the civil war in Syria? I mean, what's the reaction of maybe the student population, the faculty, the administration, the King's Academy of the country as a whole? Do they welcome this or are they worried about it? Well, you have to remember, Jordan actually, ethnically, you can make the argument, even a lot of the people that are so-called Jordanian, most of them are really from Palestine. I mean, we have, Jordan is a very, I shouldn't say most, but a, a very, very high percentage. I mean, it's very hard to know because of the Bedouin right. uh, nomad style. But, I mean, yeah, you're right with Syrians coming in and then the Palestinians, of course, from 1948, 1967, okay, those wars with Israel. Um, Jordan is basically a land of immigrants, no no question about it. And, and King Abdullah has drawn rave, rave reviews as being a humanitarian. He's, he's won awards, and he's considered a good guy for being so clement and, and, and merciful and gracious and welcoming people. But, but let me tell you, there's another side to that. People with the economy struggling, people are, you know, there's some resentment that's kind of crept in where people are like, hey, wait a minute here. You know, they're, they're taking jobs and let's focus on our country here. I mean, really, that's a very common argument that you hear. So there is some tension there. It's great to be a nice guy and be welcoming of people. But, you know, the Jordanian economy has really struggled recently, unfortunately. When you look at what you have taught and what you are experiencing in the classroom in Jordan in the King's Academy, and then you see on the Internet uh, how teaching is going in the United States. Uh, Do you see big differences? Are there not uh, teachers trying to teach the way you are in in Jordan? Another great question. Yeah, actually, if I will, I hope I can indulge you in just a short little anecdote. My favorite story to tell about my experience, because I taught for 18 years in America before my dear wife and I decided to take the plunge, carpe diem, and why not? But listen to this. I mean, here I am, an American, English-speaking Christian, right, teaching Arab-speaking Muslims Judaism and on the Hebrew people, right, with 20 miles away, the spot where Jesus was baptized and Mount Nebo where Moses was promised. I mean, you can't make that up, right? You would never have that kind of an experience in America. It's over there, all the stuff that happened. I mean, it's unbelievable to think that I'm literally living in the cradle of civilization with all this history. But back to your question. I would say the big thing is is that we have this debate on do you teach sage on the stage traditional style where the teacher is the dispenser of information like what you had and what I had or is, is the teacher the facilitator where the kids are basically teaching each other. Yeah, and that That's you again, try and do the latter more, right? 
I try to be a mix, but yeah. more of the latter. Listen, yeah. I, I want to keep talking, but unfortunately, we're out of time. I mean, we're just getting into it, but you've done a fantastic job of describing what you've experienced over there in the midst of the pandemic. Thank you so much, William Sylvester, for being our guest on Thank The Political Insider. Yes. Thank you for having me. That's, that's all for this week and for the last three years and two months. Sayonara. <laughs>